0: Good evening, it's six o'clock, which means it is time for GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. We have a really cool, awesome episode for you today with me, your host, Yemen Chen, and with my co-host. Nav. Hey, Yemen. What's up? How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yourself? I cannot stand the heat. But you know, other than that, and other than the fact that I just got back from vacation, and I hate the fact that I'm back from vacation, everything is great. So, as I said, we have a really cool guest today. Uh, joining us is Jeremy Lant from Biochemistry. How are you doing, Jeremy?
1: I'm uh, very well, thank you. Awesome. Thanks
0: for having me today. Oh, it is our pleasure. And you're in sort of an interesting position in your graduate studies right now. You're, you're sort of making the transition from a master's program into the PhD.
1: Yes, I'm on the cusp of becoming a big boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm just applying to transfer to PhD this fall, so I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, also a little nervous, to be honest. <laughs> Well, oh, awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about like, what that process entails?
0: What do you do to um, you know, earn your big boy pants? <laughs> well,
1: to earn my big boy pants, um, uh, it's actually a, a lot like a miniature master's defense, essentially. So I'm just going to go in and, well, first of all, you have to write a big proposal. That's the main meat and potatoes of the project. It's about six or seven pages long basically everything I've done and everything I want to do, proving that I actually know what I'm talking about. And then I'm going to have a, a short uh, transfer exam, which is just a five-minute presentation with three professors. They've already read my proposal, they know it's up. And then they're basically going to grill me for 20 to 25 minutes and make sure I deserve the big boy pants, I guess.
0: <laughs> that sounds very exciting. So what yeah. is this proposal? What, what sort of project are you bringing to the table here?
1: Well, uh, it's a many-faceted project, but uh, we work a lot on understanding the genetic code and how we can modify the genetic code and how it can be misinterpreted or exploited to solve biological problems or better understand diseases.
0: All right, so you're looking at how things work in the cell and how things, you know, might not work properly, properly speaking.
1: Yeah, and so there's a lot of different um, aspects of it, but uh, it all comes down to basically the genetic code Mm -hmm. and how it's actually read. So you can sort of think of the genetic code as like a blueprint, and then from that blueprint, uh, the cell is going to print off little copies of instructions. So that's like the RNA, okay? And then uh, you have an assembly line that's gonna take those instructions in and it's gonna build them into a protein. And that's actually the functioning unit in the cell. Proteins can take all different shapes and sizes and do all kinds of different things. Okay,
0: so like DNA is the blueprint that tells Sort of your cell and your body had a function. Proteins are the things that do all the functions, and what you're studying is the sort of RNA in between that goes from blueprint to final product.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the majority of my work I do is on these things called transfer RNAs, or tRNAs for short. Uh, so they're sort of the middleman between the genetic code and the protein. So the way they work is these. Uh, print out instructions, these mRNA molecules, we call them, come from the nucleus, which is like where all the blueprints are stored, basically. And uh, so these transfer RNAs are going to mediate reading that code. So they have... they are very like DNA, actually, and they form similar to a DNA base pair with three letters of the genetic code. So that essentially forms a word, And then the other end of the transfer RNA will get loaded with an amino acid, and then this they'll get brought together in succession, and you'll basically paste together a bunch of amino acids like beads on a string, and then they fold to form whichever function or whichever protein uh, you're creating, and then it will go off and do its thing.
2: So in some sense, the tRNA reads the instructions sent out by the DNA.
1: Exactly. So it it sort of translate it literally translates it we call it protein translation for a reason (laughs) it's going to translate the genetic code into an actually functioning unit which is a protein
2: all right and um is there anything weird about the way it functions or like as in can it go wrong at times or yeah
1: absolutely and that's sort of leading into where my research comes in so it turns out so basically these tRNAs are pretty small they're about 100 nucleotides in length. Uh, that Just take my word for it. That's not very big. <laughs> really tiny, <yeah? laughs> So it's, it's a, a pretty small piece. But it turns out it only takes uh, one or two nucleotide changes. So we're only talking about messing up, you know, 1% to 3% of the whole sequence for this thing to actually just do completely the wrong thing. So it's still going to, Either it's going to read the uh, blueprint wrong or it's going to bring in the wrong amino acid. So there's sort of two ways okay. it can mess things up. But like the either
2: on p- the input or the
1: output. Exactly. So. It, and these I are know. very
2: tiny machines of some sort.
1: Yeah, so they're like just small thing. RNA molecules. Yeah. They're actually very similar to DNA, but they're mm. folded up in this... Uh, structure that actually looks a little bit like a clover leaf. And that's what's going to be brought into the ribosome and bring in either the right or wrong amino acid to either the right or wrong codon. And a codon is essentially like a word of DNA. So
2: if the tRNA doesn't work fine, you get the wrong word.
1: Yeah. And uh, that's what we're beginning to investigate. So it was Really interesting, our collaborators were doing work in yeast, and uh, they basically made a mutation in a gene, which completely knocks out the function of the protein. Okay, So it causes the wrong amino acid to get in. That protein doesn't work anymore. The yeast can barely survive, because it's a really important protein for them. But it turned out uh, the yeast found a way around this. By mutating a tRNA. And causing misreading of that codon all across the cell. So, at about 5%, they're completely misinterpreting that one word of their genome. It's like if you had a book and five times you read the word the wrong <laughs> as like, t- <laughs> and it just, it still made sense to you. Okay. So, the cell, what it, you know, it was willing to undergo that significant. Um, screw up in its way of reading the genetic code just for the sake of repressing this gene mutation so mm. so sort of like in a way, scientists have
0: introduced a sort of error into the yeast genome and then caused the yeast to sort of function poorly yeah. and then the yeast, Developed it's like an error to suppress that initial error. Exactly. In order to resume, you know, sort of more normal function. Yeah. Neat. So, two wrongs basically made a right. <laughs> exactly. In this case.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, another analogy I like to make is if you don't like your, what you're reading, just throw out your glasses. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but it was really interesting. We actually took that tRNA and put the same mutations in a human tRNA. And I'm really excited. I just got my first uh, first author publication out of this. But uh, it actually caused the same effect in human cells, believe it or not. About 5% of it was a, a proline codon. A proline is an amino acid. 5% of proline codons were mistranslated. And in human cells, it was almost more interesting because we had to stress them out and sort of put them in a depleted media so that they're really struggling to get by. And then the mistranslation started happening. Otherwise, they had backup mechanisms to repress this mistranslation. Hmm. And only when they were in a, a state of stress and you know didn't really have any better options do they allow a little more flexibility in reading the genetic code. And we're sort of still trying to figure out if this is actually the cells purposefully adapting or is it just that they're so stressed out they don't you know they forget how to read their genome properly or they just allow these things to pass through and they have other problems to worry about so these were
2: mistranslations that you made like as in you had you had to go in and tweak it with your little yeah, so equipments I, and then make the whole mistranslation happen mm-hmm. but can these mistranslations happen
1: just by just naturally Well, that's a a major thing we're hoping to find out. So up until now, uh, a tRNA-causing mistranslation in human cells has not been observed before. But other mistranslation events have. And usually those would be the proteins which actually load amino acids on tRNA will load the wrong ones. Okay. But in the case of actually a tRNA mutation just naturally causing mistranslation, We haven't been able to see that until I tried expressing that yeast tRNA Mm -hmm. in the humans. So now we're applying for a grant uh, and working with a big gene sequencing lab to look through the human genome and see if we can find any patients that have tRNA mutations that actually correlate with the disease. And uh, what we're really hoping to find is a similar case to that study in yeast where we can find patients that you know have a mistranslating tRNA that actually improves their outcome for a disease because just some single mutation has happened in a really important gene and as if it can mess up that codon just enough to restore function of that gene to enough that it needs without messing up the whole proteome maybe you can have a better disease outcome and then in the future maybe you can supply another patient that has that disease with the same tRNA and improve their outcomes.
0: So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that um, for most genetic mutations or mistranslations uh, of these sorts of things, um, it's more often than not sort of um, a bad thing for the organism. Mm-hmm. Um, it causes, for example, like things like cancer, things like death, stuff like that. But are are you basically (laughs) saying that um, in some, uh, at least in in some cases, some of these mistakes, some of these mistranslations end up providing a beneficial effect to the organism?
1: Yeah, well, we haven't found it yet, but we're looking for it, and we think it should be out there. Uh, I won't go, I don't want to blab on too much about the nitty-gritty science, Mm -hmm. but there is mounting evidence that, uh, you know, it's very likely we'll see some of these mutations, at least Ones that make the cell worse off, and then possibly ones that make the cell a little better too. But, sort of, to work our way around that, we're developing a new way that we can cause mistranslation not across the proteome, but just at a specific site that we're interested in suppressing. So, um, this actually derives from a natural translation mechanism for selenocysteine. Uh,
0: <laughs> okay, well, so for starters, could you um, define for us what is a proteome? Is that the word you're sorry? using? A proteine? proteome? Oh, is that what sorry. Um,
1: when I say proteome, it just means the whole collection of proteins in the cell. Okay. So if we say there's mistranslation across the proteome, that means at every instance of that codon or that word of DNA. Whereas... With our new system we're developing that's derived from selenocysteine translation, we hope that we're going to be able to, uh, to keep with the previous analogy, flip to a specific page and change one, the meaning of one word rather than change that word's meaning throughout the book.
0: OK, and so selenocysteine is one of these amino acids that you're targeting as a potential um, site of, for modification.
1: Um, well, Yeah, sort of. So yeah. uh, the selenocysteine translation mechanism is really the value here because it has a context-dependent mechanism. So when it gets translated, it's not like other amino acids where the same word always says selenocysteine. Okay. It actually repurposes the word stop. So normally when translation is happening, You'll reach the word stop, and then it stops. <laughs> you know, it just makes sense. It's the end of the talk, that's though. the end of the protein. Right? right, that's all the protein that's there. But if you have this certain uh, sequence in that uh, inst- within that instructions, it can tell the cell, okay, this stop word actually means selenocysteine in this case, but only in this case. So only if that special sequence is there. Can you change the outcome of that codon? So now the idea is we're trying to adapt that so that we can essentially have control of the the proteome to just change the outcome of a specific word of DNA wherever we want it without screwing up the rest of the cell.
0: OK. And so with this specificity, uh, what are some like potential applications like why would you be interested in this?
1: Well uh, it has a lot of applications but uh, the major one that we're testing sort of as our proof of principle is Mm -hmm. Huntington's disease. So Huntington's disease is a tragic but scientifically interesting case. Okay. Uh, Basically it's caused by over expand an over repeated word okay so the CAG codon will get repeated over, like, 40 times at the start of the protein. And that's how you have the disease. So that codes for an amino acid called glutamine. And glutamine is aptly named because it's kind of like a glue. You know? huh. it, <laughs> it's a it sticky has, amino acid. Yeah, it has a hydrogen—well, I don't want to get too much into the— For all the nerds out there, it has a hydrogen bond donor and a hydrogen bond acceptor. So it's almost like a perfect magnet. It has a minus end and a plus end, and it can form these really sticky networks that cause the protein to aggregate. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping that if we can redeploy our selenocysteine translation mechanism and change the outcome of those glutamines to selenocysteine, which isn't a sticky like glutamine, then we can cause these things to repel each other rather than stick to each other and hopefully prevent uh, progression of the disease.
0: Okay, so Huntington's is a disease where these certain proteins sort of clump together Mm -hmm. um, abnormally and create the disorder. So what you're saying is you can introduce a mistranslation to basically prevent that entire giant piece of glue on the Mm -hmm. end of one of the proteins.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we're intentionally messing up a protein that we don't want to be around. And uh, we can actually do it in a specific way so that we only hit uh, the mutated version of the protein.
0: Oh, that's very cool. So you're basically sabotaging diseases instead of sabotaging sort of normal function of the cell.
2: Yes, exactly. I find this very interesting because you've taken something that is you've take, taken something that's usually a negative aspect of the genome and you've put a positive spin on it, mm-hmm. it's almost like an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, we're really excited about it. It's uh, it, It's been a lot of good successes so far. You know, we're still in early stages, but uh, we think we might have sort of hit a source of untapped potential here. And, uh There's a whole bunch of different ways we could go to it. We can even take it further to start putting in other amino acids, amino acids that don't even exist in nature if you really want to get crazy. And Mm -hmm. uh, really, you know, gaining over a whole newfound control over the proteome. Wait, so amino acids that don't exist in nature. So you're creating artificial kind of proteins? In a sense, yes. So (laughs) uh, there are. Sort of two facets to that. There are the ones that actually don't exist in nature, so you mm-hmm. can have all these crazy things like ones that fluoresce or ones that cause proteins to stick together. Uh, all these different things you can, you know, build these abomination proteins to do whatever you want. Cool. And then <laughs> the less mad scientist application <laughs> is making <laughs> modified amino acids. So these would be ones that occur naturally in the cell but they're normally created after the protein is made as a modification whereas in this case we can actually start to encode them directly as if they were a normal amino acid and that is an v- extremely valuable research tool because it's normally very hard to isolate and uh, characterize these modified amino acids and you know narrow in what each modification is actually doing
0: all right so you're you creating these um, sort of intermediary um, sort of structures in some of these processes, and sort of taking a, 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 an isolated snapshot in time, so you can study them more in depth in and more controlled oh, sort of absolutely. manner. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty much how it goes. But um, so, forgive me, my mind goes there. But these crazy like Frankenstein proteins that you could potentially. Um, potentially create I mean there's lots of upsides in like what you could do in in modeling different you know situations different processes Mm. different stuff you can study are there any um perhaps
1: doomsday terrible downside scenarios (laughs) well I mean that's sort of a common misconception I think it's always tempting to be afraid when you're messing with something that doesn't necessarily happen in nature but you have to understand that when we do these things we're not providing any advantage to this organism it doesn't want protein x to glow green it doesn't okay, you right. know it doesn't want this protein to stick to that protein it's not conferring any advantage over it it's purely just for lab purposes and if you did want to create some crazy thing that can t- Do evil, you know. Do your evil. Just hypothetically, you know. Then you wouldn't get funded for that, (laughs) and uh, you'd have a lot of explaining to do. (laughs) So these things are actually really well controlled, and most of the applications we do are really just for scientific purposes. It's not going to leak out and become some evil organism that takes over the world.
0: But the possibility is there. No, (laughs) no. (laughs) No, Okay. So so. you you put my mind at ease. Thanks very much for that. (laughs) I guess you point. have a
2: lot of regulations and ethics
1: rules oh, within your lab. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, it's, we're really on the cusp of these things. So I don't think anyone would even be smart enough at this point <laughs> to make some, you know, evil concoction with genetic code expansion. It's hard enough to just get a protein modification in there at this point. So I definitely see where you're coming from, you know. I, it, It's always a little scary when you're messing with nature, you know. But uh, I can honestly say from experience that this is a very controlled aspect of research, and there's no danger like that to the public. We're always thinking about these things as scientists, finding safeguards, you know, the best way to go about it so that we don't cause any problems.
0: Well, that's uh, definitely... Good a huge to hear. relief. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good to know. But again, I mean, I, I can't help but feel a, a tiny twang of disappointment. Um, <laughs> still, though, so, I mean, this is perhaps really early to ask this question, seeing as you haven't started your PhD yet. <laughs> but do you have um, sort of long-term dreams or goals about where this research might take you?
1: Um. Oh, man. It's hard not to a say. mad scientist sort of uh, thing going on, right? Yeah, I guess uh, I'll see where it goes. I don't know. I'd always been interested in ending up in academia as a professor, mm-hmm. or you know, if there's something that could be profitable, maybe start a company off of it. But uh, there are just endless applications for this. You're, con- you know, you're controlling a, the basic making of protein, so you know, the limit is whatever you can think of. So uh, I guess I can't really give a very specific answer, but uh, it's always something I'm thinking about. There's tons of science to be done, I'm really excited about it.
0: So is this what drew you to this area of research in the first place?
1: Uh, Partly. I've always been really interested in this emerging field of synthetic biology. uh, I think it's really going to blow up. You know, I always say it's kind of like being a computer scientist in the '80s. We're cool. on the cusp of a real explosion of research, and you know, maybe there won't be as much money as computers can be made, but uh, there's going to be a lot of really exciting discoveries already happening and coming out in the next decade or two. Right, but
0: then again, hopefully, they m- might not be the equivalent of the dot-com dot-com bubble
1: yeah, imploding as well. <laughs> I don't but really... I mean. You you saw the hype about CRISPR-Cas9, that's a good example. So those kinds of things are uh, really starting to take off these days. So like anything is possible, you're only constrained by
0: your imagination, but maybe the practicality of it is several steps behind.
1: Yes, it's much slower to develop than an app or something. (laughs) You need to do a few years of wet lab research, and that's another thing for... uh, arguing against the mad scientist theory is it's really hard to do these things and <laughs> it takes time and money so That's the right. applications are going to be very powerful but it's not like you're going to achieve it in your basement or something
2: <laughs> it's like the e equals mc squared of einstein's <laughs> and it took so many years for the yeah. atom bomb to
1: develop <laughs> right. Oh, so yeah, no. there's there's I several like, where is he steps going in this. between. Yeah. Is this a mm-hmm. compliment or is he?
0: <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> so we're coming up to the end of our time here. Uh, thank you very much for coming here and talking to us tonight, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Um, if there, do you have a web presence, a Twitter profile, anything that people might want to follow if they're interested in keeping up with your work?
1: Um. That's a good question. Uh, I have a ResearchGate profile. Cool. All right. If you look up Jeremy Lant, uh, L-A-N-T, I'll post up my publications up there as they come out and try and provide some updates. Um, I don't know. I don't usually tweet or Facebook about science, so don't find me there. (laughs) You'll just find me partying and stuff.
0: (laughs) All right. Sure. Well, we'll have the link to your ResearchGate profile on our website. And that website is gradcast.ca. You've been listening to GradCast. We are a production of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. If you're interested in coming on to the program and talking about your own research, or if you'd like to join our committee and help make GradCast happen, you can find us uh, you can find us at gradcast.ca. You can also email us, us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. We were talking with Jeremy Lant today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm Yima Jen with... Mav. Thank no you and good night. No one to tonight. talk with all by myself. No one to walk with,
1: but I'm happy on the show. Ain't misbehaving, I'm saving my
0: life for you. For certain the one I love